Heavenly Father, we once again come into your holy presence, embracing the truth that we have this wonderful privilege because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lamb of God and his great redemptive work on our behalf. We praise you for the majesty and the orderliness of your glorious creative work. This beautiful world that you've given to us to live on as we also praise you for the majesty and the perfection and the orderliness of your revelatory work which is your word the scripture and that it is truly a book upon which we can confidently build our lives a book upon which there, the truths in it we can entrust our eternal souls thank you lord that when we know your son personally as lord and savior Regardless of all the challenges of this life, we can say, as did the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as we now again open your word to attempt to delve into its eternal riches, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would enlighten our minds in new areas maybe we've never seen before, and may he cause the scripture to truly ignite a fire in our hearts that is never quenched, a fire that burns so strongly that we simply must share what we learn with others. Now I ask that you would give me clarity of thought and speech. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. May you take away any kind of distraction from our minds so we can lift up Jesus and Jesus alone. May he be glorified for we ask in his name. Amen. Although that vinegar drink offered Jesus in response to his words, I thirst, would not have quenched his painfully parched lips and his dry tongue that cleaved to his jaw, it did give him a little bit of moisture needed to then cry out again with a very loud voice, his victorious cry, it is finished. That was far, far from the cry of a dying and hopeless martyr. It was far from the cry or the final gasp of a self-deceived phony. It was not the tragic finale of a basically very good man who somehow or another just got himself in a lot of unplanned trouble with a bunch of self-righteous, obstinate, hypocritical religionists. If that was true of Jesus, if any of those situations were true of Jesus, his closing words might have been, I am finished. But those were not his closing words. If those had been his final words, or some of them, then we of all people would be most miserable, wouldn't we? Because all our faith and our hope would merely be in someone who is dead, gone, and finished. But the Lord Jesus was not finished at all. As a matter of fact, he had many new and wonderful things to accomplish. In one way, he was just beginning many, many new things. Uh, for example, soon he would uh, defeat the sting of death and the victory over the grave by his resurrection in a new and glorified body. 
he also would soon have the wonderful privilege to descend. What did he do while his body lay in the tomb? What did he do with his soul and spirit? He, he descended down into the paradise section of Hades. And there he took, it says, captivity captive. He freed all of the Old Testament saints and took them with him up into the third heaven. What happened to the soul of an Old Testament believer, the one who looked ahead to the coming Christ? You know, that was looking ahead, we look back, but it's always been faith in the coming Messiah. What happened to the one who believed in the coming Christ in the Old Testament days, to their soul when they died? They did not go into the third heaven, did they? Because all those animal sacrifices had only covered their sin. They had, never, they had not been cleansed of sin. So they had to stay. I imagine it was a wonderful place. Abraham's bosom is another name for it. Um, but it wasn't the third heaven. It wasn't God's presence. They had to go there and wait for Christ. And the full redemption price of their sins was paid and they could be thoroughly cleansed by the blood of the lamb and then so after he died and finished the work he went down there and freed them and took them can you imagine he was looking forward to that to taking adam and abraham and moses and david and all those joseph and on and on you could go all the prophets with him into the third heaven he was, this is all part of the joy that was set before him as he's on the cross. This is something, you know, new and exciting. He wasn't finished. And then, too, um, not only that, but he was soon to begin his post-resurrection appearances and spend 40 days teaching his men all the truths that they didn't quite grasp. Can't you imagine how he must have looked forward to showing them he was not dead. That here I am, alive, resurrected, glorified. The excitement of Mary Magdalene at the, at the empty tomb when she first saw him, thought he was the gardener and when he finally said her name. The excitement. Don't you get excited when, you, when you're going to surprise somebody with something, like a grandchild with a present that they've been longing to get or something? You, you hardly can wait to do that because you would just want to see the joy on their faces. And he was going to teach them like he taught the two on the road to Emmaus. All the things in the scripture that spoke of him that they didn't see. I love, I get so, when I study all week, and, well, two years I study, I get so filled to overflowing. I get excited about coming and sharing that. If you teach a Sunday school class and you learn something, don't you want to share it with others? He was so excited, and I'm sure he was anticipating teaching them all these things, opening the scripture and saying, hey, you missed this. Do you see this? And they, oh, the light bulbs are going off, and they're so excited. All this was, he wasn't finished at all. It was just a whole lot of new stuff he was going to be doing. Um, and then, too, when he went up, who came down? The Holy Spirit came down. And who did the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, calling out still to this day? A bride for Christ. He was excited about that. His bride, the church, was going to be called out. So he, it was not the end at all. It was the beginning of many, many new things. It is finished was not the tragic cry of a victim at all. 
It was the triumphant shout of a victor, right? Absolutely. It was the declaration of the eternal son of God to the entire universe that everything he came to earth as incarnate man to do was accomplished. He did it. It was complete. Came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to do what else? Reveal the Father. How would we know about God the Father if it wasn't for the revelation of the Son? He showed us exactly what the Father is like. So it wasn't the end at all. In the original New Testament language, Greek, of course, it is finished, consists of just one word. And that word is, say it with me, te telestai. So now you know some Greek. Te telestai. You also know Greek because agape, right? You all know about agape. That's a word for love. Te telestai. The Greeks boast <laughs> that their language enables them to say an ocean's worth of information in just a few words. And Terry says, that's not true with this Greek, right? <laughs> But if you read the book of John, the Gospel of John, that's so true. He, in Greek, his, his Greek is amazing, but um, he could say an ocean's worth of words in just a few words. And that's exactly what the Greek language succeeds in doing with this word tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished, it stands finished, it will always be finished. The word was very common in Christ's day. It was a very common word. You would hear it all the time. For example, it was used by a servant reporting to his master the completion of a task that he had been given to, to, to do. So if he finished the task of his master, he'd go before his master and he'd say, Tetelestai, it's done, it's finished, I did it. Christ was the servant of God who had finished the work of redemption his father sent him to do. The word was also used by the priests when they finished examining an animal sacrifice and found it without spot or blemish. Well, Christ was God's perfect lamb without even a hint of a spot or a blemish. Or when an artist finished his painting or when an author finished his manuscript, they would each say, Te telestai. The death of Christ, you see, completed the many prophetic paintings or pictures in the Old Testament manuscript about the Son. From Genesis to Revelation, this is like a painting, isn't it? This book, this manuscript is a painting. And so Tetelestai is perfect. We're going to talk about how Tetelestai is actually said four times in the Bible. Well, perhaps the most significant use of this word, Tetelestai, in the first century was when merchants and businessmen used it to declare that a debt had been paid in full. Christ fully met the righteous demands of God's holy law so that he could pay the wages for our sin in full. As we said, he suffered both the physical and spiritual death, the full wages of sin. So he could say rightfully in this sixth saying from the cross. And it's interesting, it's his sixth saying, isn't it? Six, he was doing it for man, the number of man is six. It's only one word, 
tetelestite, but this one word carries more significance than all of the others, all of the other sayings on the cross. I think that only eternity, do you think we'll ever be learning in eternity with God? I do. I think he's anticipating that. You know how he showed his disciples all these things? I think he's looking forward to sharing with us all the things we missed because we're really only scratching the surface. Do you know how many layers there are to this book? This book is just like its author. It's infinite. I believe when we get to heaven, he's going to show us layers that just keep going infinitely deeper and deeper and deeper. I know I open up some books and it talks about the Hebrew language and how all the symbols in the Hebrew language point to the lamb and point to the atonement and point to all these things. And it's kind of beyond me because I don't know. I know some Greek, but I don't know Hebrew. And then there's numbers. You can get in depth with the numbers, numerology in the Bible, and he'll show us things forever. You didn't see this, and then we get so excited. We'll be having Bible study in heaven, but the teacher won't be me. Thank goodness. <laughs> the teacher will be Jesus. Only eternity is going to reveal to us, I believe, everything that his cry, te telestai, entailed. But there are some things that we can appreciate today as being included in that cry, such as his fulfillment of all the prophecies written about him up to and including his death. So let's just quickly review some of them. I'm going to begin with some of the prophecies about his birth. The promised Messiah, uh, who would fatally crush the serpent's head, would be supernaturally conceived by a woman's seed. How long ago did God give that prophecy? Way back to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. That was a prophecy about the coming Messiah's not really his birth, but his conception, that he would be born of a woman's seed. Women don't have seed. So it was telling man from the very beginning he would have a supernatural conception, and he was. He was born of a virgin, wasn't he? Mary was a virgin. It also tells us as you go through Scripture that he would be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, etc. He would be in the direct lineage of King David, both by his royal bloodline through his blood mother Mary and also he could inherit the royal throne line from King David through his stepfather Joseph and because his father was a stepfather it wasn't the bloodline so he circumvented the Jeconian curse and if you don't know what I'm talking about go study the Jeconian curse it's amazing only one person could be the king of Israel and he, didn't have, he, he couldn't have a father. It's just, again, like the scripture, it's amazing. Uh, Isaiah 49.1 said that the Messiah would be named before his birth. Was he? Yes, Joseph was told what to name him before his birthday. And what was that name? Jesus. Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 foretold the birthplace of the Messiah. Where would he be born? Let's be more specific. Beth, you know, at the time of Jesus' birth, there were three Bethlehems. He was born, and Micah 5.2 said he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. It's fascinating to, also, this is something Jesus will point out in heaven, I think, the Lord Jesus, um, all the names in scripture that are so significant. Bethlehem means what? House of bread. 
Well, how appropriate for the bread of life to be born in the house of bread. What does Ephrata mean? Fruitful. Never has there been anyone as fruitful uh, as the bread of life born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Perfect. So he would be born, Micah 5, 2 says that. Um, then it also tells us in scripture that the entrance of the Messiah would bring sorrow for others, great sorrow. And of course, you know about Herod's slaughter of the innocents. That certainly fulfilled that prediction. We're told that men from the east would come riding on camels, bearing gifts to him. Hosea 11.1 1 tells us that God would call his son out of Egypt. Did Jesus come out of Egypt at one point in time? Yes. Remember, Joseph was warned to take his family to Egypt because of Herod. And he was, one, well, the Bethlehem massacre and all that. So he did come out of Egypt. Then we're also told in Isaiah 11.1 1, that the Messiah would be a, a branch from branch town. He would be a Nazarene. He would come forth out of Nazareth. And that really puzzled the Old Testament scholars because they say, how can one man come from Beth, you know, the Messiah, come from Bethlehem Ephrata, which is in Judea, yet come out of Egypt, is he going to be an Egyptian? And also be a Nazarene, which is from Nazareth up in Galilee. How can one man fulfill those three prophecies? Well, from hindsight, it's easy to see, isn't it? And so, you know, when we look at some yet unfulfilled prophecies about the second coming, you, some of you are asking me, well, how does Russia and what's going on in the Ukraine, how does that fulfill? Right now, we don't know because we don't have hindsight. I know it's coming near. Things are, you know, the stage is being set because Russia is going to be involved in coming down on Israel with, uh, you know, an alliance of uh, Turkey and Muslim and Iran. And everything the, set is, the stage is set for that war of Gog and Magog. I don't know how close we are, but it sure looks like it, doesn't it? I don't know. But from hindsight, I'll be able to tell you. <laughs> so ask me again in heaven. Um, <laughs> and then there are, other, uh, there are other Old Testament predictions, many of them, about his, that was about his birth. Then there are many about his ministry. He would be preceded by a voice crying in the wilderness. A herald of the Messiah would come first. And he was fulfilled, of course, in John the Baptist. Uh, we are told that his entrance into the world, oh, no, I already talked about that one, um, that he would open the eyes of the blind. He could even open the eyes of a man born blind. We are told that he would be able to um, cause the lame to leap, unstop the ears of the deaf, that he would make the tongue of the dumb to be able to sing, all kinds of, he would, could cleanse lepers. All such amazing miracles were part of his ministry, weren't they? The scripture predicted that the Messiah would speak in parables. Did he speak in parables? Yes, many parables. Uh, it also tells us that he would appear suddenly in his temple and cleanse it. You know, the first time in his ministry that Jesus went into Jerusalem, nobody really knew about this carpenter from Nazareth. And yet he appeared suddenly in the temple, John chapter 2. And what did he do? 
got every, all the religious rulers, Annas and Caiaphas and all of them, very upset because he did exactly what the scriptures said. He cleansed, he refined the temple. He had a zeal for his father's house. That was another prophecy that he fulfilled. Uh, he would be able to still the storms. Peace be still. It says in scripture that he would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey on the very day predicted in Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, to the very day he entered Jerusalem to officially announce himself as the true Messiah. And they could have known that day. We talked about that last week. To the very day they could have known. He would be a light unto the Gentiles, and he was. These are just a sample of many of the prophecies given to God, uh, given by God's um, prophets so that they could know and so that they could recognize their true Messiah when he came and he fulfilled all of them so why did they miss him it's just amazing isn't it how blind they were fulfilled every one of them then there are also many prophecies regarding his uh, final suffering and his death there were predictions about his rejection and his betrayal and his false accusers and the mockery and the scourging and being spat upon and the piercing of his hands and feet and that he would be numbered with transgressors, that they would divide his garments and that they would cast lots for his vesture and that he would be offered vinegar to drink in his thirst, all those and more. In addition to the accomplishment of the Old Testament direct messianic prophecies regarding his first coming. A direct prophecy is one such as he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. That's just spelled out, right? But there's a lot of indirect messianic prophecies, uh, such as event types. You know, that's what we studied in Christ in Genesis. We looked at all the picture types of Christ that are in the book of Genesis. And then we were doing the same in Exodus when COVID hit. But there's a lot of pictures that speak of the coming Messiah, of Christ, through pictures. And so these were also included in his statement when he said, it is finished. We have, for example, the covering of sin, covering um, of sin that God provided right away for Adam and Eve after the fall with shedding the blood of an innocent sin substitute. I think it was a lamb that he covered them with. Uh, but that was all a picture of the coming Messiah and what he would do on the cross. Then, of course, the whole story of the Passover lamb and what they did on Passover. Then you have, as I said earlier, when we're going to study next, Lord willing, the tabernacle and how it pictured Christ, even down to every piece of furniture, the colors on the curtains, uh, the veil, etc., etc., the priest's elaborate rituals, um, even the offerings, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, all of it pictured Christ. And then you have the wonderful seven God-given feast days, which I always love to study. We need to study that one day, the seven feast days and how they picture uh, everything in Christ's life. And he's fulfilled the first four, and we're in the summer. He, the spring feasts are finished. We're in the summer, which is the church age, and then the next feast is in the fall of the year, and it's the Feast of Trumpets, and what do you think that one probably symbolizes? The rapture. The rapture. I do believe it does. So we have all those pictures. Uh, they all foreshadowed Christ's cross work. All of it now was to a telestai. 
And that one, that uh, more excellent sacrifice typified by, there's the tabernacle I got behind. There it is, see it? Okay, on we go. That <laughs> more excellent sacrifice that was typified, pictured by Abel's lamb, had now been offered. The shelter from God's wrath that was pictured uh, by Noah's ark of safety. And how many doors went into the ark? One door. Who was that door? Christ Jesus, I am the door, he said. How about the ladder? The ladder of Jacob's dream. One ladder to heaven, and who is the ladder? I call him the Lord of the ladder. There's one way into the ark. There's one way to heaven. There's only one way, not many. Don't be like a universal universalist. <laughs> I think it always lead to, to God. No, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I didn't say that. God said that. Christ said that. Also, we have uh, the almost offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah. He was the almost offering. God never intended for Isaac to die up there. He was testing Abraham. And Isaac, of course, was picturing Christ, who willingly, you know, there was no ram for, for Christ, was there? So he had the, the, the um, almost sacrifice of Isaac, the animal sacrifice of the ram, and then you have the actual sacrifice of Christ. Then you have the protection from the angel of death on all firstborns. That was attained by the blood of the Passover lambs on Passover. How about the rock in the wilderness that was smitten, and out of it came what? Living water. Who is the rock? Christ is the rock. And out of him, when he was smitten, came what? Living water of the Holy Spirit. Why did Moses not get to go into the promised land? Because he ruined God's picture. God is very serious about his pictures, his Old Testament pictures. And when Moses, in anger, now I would have been angry if I was him too. He had to put up with a lot of mumbling, complaining people. But in anger... He smote that rock twice. And you know, Jesus is, was only smitten once, once for all. So Moses was prevented from going into the promised land because of that. Uh, what else have we got? Okay, the rock, the brazen serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. He pictures Christ and what he's doing on the cross here. What about the tree? You remember the tree when we studied Exodus? They, when when uh, Moses led the people and they were all thirsty, talk about I thirst, they were so thirsty in the wilderness and he says, I know there's a, you know, a place up ahead with water, it's called Mara. They get there and what happens? The water is bitter, they can't drink it. And so what does Moses throw into the water? A tree. And it makes the water sweet. What is that tree picturing? The cross, the work of Christ on the cross. It makes what is bitter sweet. And all these, all these are, um, these are pictures of Christ, and now they're fulfilled. And so he can say, te telestai. Furthermore, there was the fulfillment of prophetic types of many Old Testament figures, people. We have, you know, pictures in events, and we have pictures in people, uh, such as, well, Adam. Adam was a picture of Christ, the first Adam, and you have the last Adam is Christ. You've got Abel, who was murdered by his brother, just as Jesus would be 
rejected and murdered by his brethren, the Jews. Isaac, of course, we talked about him, the beloved of the father who pictured Jesus's willingness to be sacrificed. Jesus was also the promised prophet like unto Moses. Was Moses a picture of Christ? Yes. Amazingly, in more ways than Joseph. That's why he said, you know, the Messiah will be a prophet like unto Joseph, uh, to, uh, Moses. Moses was mighty in words and in deeds. Most of the prophets were either mighty in deeds or mighty in words, but not mo both. Mo Moses most. <laughs> so he, you know, Jesus was mighty in both, wasn't he? When we studied the life of Moses in Exodus, we were amazed that he pictures Jesus more than even Joseph. And you all, I always thought Joseph was the greatest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And he was. He was fantastic. But Moses even superseded that. Joseph was hated without a cause by his brothers. He was ridiculed. He was plotted against. He was stripped of his robe. He was sold for how many pieces of silver? I think it was 20. He was lied about. He was placed in captivity with two criminals. <laughs> he was... Um, and then, and then in one day, he went from the pit to the pinnacle, from the pit to the palace, from the prison to the palace, didn't he? He sat on the right hand of Pharaoh. So many ways he pictured Christ. And then I love that scene at the end when he's unrecognized by his own, and when they finally know who he is, they bow before him, and he forgives them. And that is such a picture. One day, Israel shall be saved. His brothers will finally recognize him when he comes at the second coming. And they will mourn for him as an only begotten son. They will realize their sin in having pierced him and put him to death. And just like Joseph's brother, they will bow down before him and he will be their God. I love that. I, every time I read that in the Bible, I cry. <clears throat> Jonah was a picture. Jonah was a picture, not in his rebellion. You know, you know, the outline for the book of Jonah is so simple. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, oh. <laughs> I have a little whale prepared for you. <laughs> My husband always says, Lord, teach me so I don't have to go through it. Let me learn the lessons you want to teach me so I don't have to have a Jonah experience. <laughs> but Jonah was a picture of Christ in his death, three days and three nights in the, and the, what is it I say, the, Foam in the blubber bed, the foam blubber bed in the belly of the whale. <laughs> uh, Boaz, Boaz, the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is a picture of Christ um, because he was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Ruth is kind of a picture of the church. Uh, also, you have Joshua. I forgot Joshua. Joshua was the captain of the Lord of hosts. He's a picture of Christ. Jeremiah, how was Jeremiah a picture of Christ? Well, he was a man of sorrows. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Was Christ a man of sorrows? Yes, he was. Um, all these, I'm sure you can, uh, David, David, David was a picture of Christ in so many ways as well. His rejection, his betrayal by a familiar friend. What was it, Ahithophel? His good friend betrayed him. And of course, David had a heart after God. Ah, oh, so many of them. All those character pictures of Christ were now accomplished, and they were included in the scope of his words, it is finished. There are over 300 pictures or prophecies concerning the Lord's first coming. All of them were precisely, 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 and literally fulfilled 
in one man, and his name was Jesus. There are some 30 Old Testament prophecies just concerning his death. Peter Stoner, a man who wrote a book called Science Speaks, said that for 300 prophecies to be fulfilled in just one man is a chance of one in 100 quadrillion. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. It would be like, Peter Stoner said, it would be like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. The whole state, two feet deep, and you put one little red mark on one of those silver dollars and you bury it in there somewhere and then you get one person, one chance to find that one silver dollar with a red little spot on it. That is one in 100 quadrillion. Can you trust this book? Because one man did find that one red spotted silver dollar and his name was Jesus and he fulfilled all Three, chances of that, one in 100 quadrillion. This is not a man-written book. The other holy books of other religions, and they're not holy at all, they're man-made, they're devil-inspired, they don't dare predict, have prophecies. A few that have have proven wrong. But God says over and over again, predicts the because he knows the end from the beginning because he is the true God. So what does this say about all the prophecies? The 300 were just about the first coming. There are many others about the second coming. What does that, does that give you confidence about the prophecies regarding the second coming? Are they going to be fulfilled? Of course they are. Are they going to be fulfilled precisely and literally? Of course they are. It's not just some allegorical coming of Christ one day. No, he is going to come soon for his church. And you are, and I am, going to hear that trumpet and be changed in a twinkling of an eye. You can count on that. We have proof. Well, in the New Testament, we have Jesus himself predicting things. First of all, it starts out with John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah. He, uh, in his words of John 1.29, he identified the Lamb of God as Christ. And when he identified him as a lamb, that means suffering. You know, he would suffer because the lambs suffered. They were used as the sacrifices. So he was talking about the Passover lamb. He would suffer. And the Lord himself told about this in John chapter 2. That was John chapter 1. John chapter 2, the Lord spoke of his death in terms of the destruction of the temple. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Well, to destroy it, that means suffering, right? And he's speaking of his body. John chapter 3, again, he spoke of his death to Nicodemus. Uh, and he compared it, his death, to being lifted up uh, like the serpent in the wilderness. In John chapter 6, he spoke about giving his flesh for the life of the world. In his good shepherd sermon of John chapter 10, he said he was the good shepherd, and the good shepherd would do what with his life? He would lay down his life for his sheep. In John chapter 12, he spoke of his death in terms of <clears throat> a grain of corn or grain of wheat being, uh, you know, it has, it has to die basically by being buried in the ground so that it can then bring forth much fruit. 
And I could go on and on with all of John's chapters. That you know, it was all foretold that he would come, the Messiah would come, and he would die. And Jesus Himself knew that from the beginning that he must must be about his Father's business. All of that is entailed in His Word when He says, "Take, tell us, die. It is finished." So after the drink of vinegar, the Lord Jesus looked with calm, precise, divine vision through the entire record of his human life. And he knew that every prophecy prior to his actual death had been fulfilled. And so in a loud shout of victory, he cried out, it is finished. And I don't want to wake up anybody sleeping. I would have loved to have shouted that, but um, I'll spare your ears. <laughs> And in those words, really one word, te telestai, we hear the clanking chains of bondage burst loose and the prison walls fall down, don't we? Te telestai, that's why it's my favorite word and I want it on my tombstone. <laughs> Say, she is finished. <laughs> Uh, it was the definitive proclamation from the lips of the eternal Son of God to the entire universe of his creation that absolutely everything he had come to earth as incarnate man to do was now complete. No more need for animal sacrifices. No more need for a priesthood. No more need for a temple. Do you think it's just a coincidence that the Jews haven't had a temple since right at the time of Christ? That they can't offer animal sacrifices since the time of Christ, 70 AD? Do you think that's just a coincidence? Or that God was showing them it's over, fine, complete, that whole, everything it was about was a picture of him. He came, so they don't need, you know, the pictures. The requirements of the law were met. The full payment of God's redemption was made. The revelation of the Father to man was given. The rejection and the suffering was over. Evil men and the satanic realm had done their worst. God himself had even poured out his undiluted wrath upon Christ. And the cup had been drained to the very dregs. And now the sword of heaven's justice against sin was sheathed. That sword was put in its sheath. <laughs> a more honorable, a more important, a more difficult task has never been entrusted to anyone, angel or human. You know, in fact, no mere angel or human could ever have accomplished what only the God-man accomplished. Angels are spirit beings. Angels could not have died for man. They can't die. They don't have a body and blood. It wouldn't do any man any good to die because all men inherit the Adamic sin nature. It had to be the God-man. God himself had to be our kinsman, 
redeemer. God himself had to take on our likeness, body, soul, and spirit to be our kinsman redeemer and shed real blood and really die for you and I. Do you get that? That's why John, in Revelation chapter 5, he's in heaven, you know, in a vision, and he's looking around for who is worthy to take the scroll out of God the Father's hand. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. Who is worthy to take back this earth that, this, that Satan, the usurper, has stolen from, from the rightful owner? And, the, and he looks and there's no one worthy in the whole universe. And then all of a sudden, there he is. There is one worthy. And who is it? The lamb, the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. The lamb, Jesus Christ, is the only one who had, could ever have accomplished the atonement work for you and I. Making uh, it possible for us, I think of atonement as at one mint. We can be at one mint with God, can't we? Because of Christ. Christ in us, and we're one with God. It's it's. We owe him so much, don't we? Can't even put it in words. But Jesus did what no one else could ever have done, and in his final seconds of life, he victoriously shouts, it is finished. Upon that, that awful place called Skull Hill, the Son of God, I want you to understand this. We're going to get into some theology now, but hold on. <laughs> on that cross, he began and finished the work of atonement. That means he did not finish something that the Old Testament Levitical priesthood had begun. And he did not begin something that a non-clerical uh, bunch of priests today are finishing. He began and he ended the atonement work for the sins of the world on the cross. Let me explain that in another way. Some people would think that the Old Testament priesthood, every time animals were sacrificed and they went through all their ritual, that it was a little bit, you know, chipping away a little bit at a little by little um, on the atonement work for our sins. And that when Christ came and died on the cross, he finished what they had all started and were, you know, doing progressively. You follow that? And then others think that he began what is still today being finished by a non-clerical anti biblical bunch of priests that every time they offer up a, a mass or a sacrifice that they're finishing what Christ began at Calvary. Both of those are wrong. They are totally anti-scriptural. You see, he alone, he reconciled, he redeemed, he propitiated, which means he satisfied God's justice. He saved, he atoned completely by himself for all the sins of the world, and he did it once for all. He began the work on the cross, and he finished the work on the cross. And it was once for all. 
And it is on that basis and that basis only that by our faith in that truth, we are declared righteous. The glory is, therefore, that he did it all. The glory is all his. It's not, it doesn't belong to some Old Testament priest. It doesn't belong to some New Testament priest, which shouldn't be. The, you know what the New Testament priesthood is? You and I. We are a royal priesthood, aren't we? If you go to a church that has priests, you're still in the Old Testament. Get out of there. Just like I say, if you, if you have a cross in your home with Jesus still hanging on it, get rid of it. He's not on that cross. He's not going to suffer anymore. It was once for all. He is off that cross. You know, it's, it's empty, and so is the tomb. <laughs> Hallelujah. So he did it all. There's absolutely nothing left for the sinner to do. No works can be added to the price of our salvation. It is sin and it is vanity for anyone to attempt to add some puny little finished work of their own um, or thing that they think will finish his work on the cross. For example, I said yesterday, I like to cross-stitch. If I made this beautiful cross-stitch work of art, okay, it took me years to do, and uh, I put my little name down there at the end, and I framed it and everything, and then somebody came along, broke the frame, and put one little ugly stitch down at the bottom. How silly. I, I did it all. I finished it. You know, that isn't, that isn't, that is a, that's an insult to me, isn't it? And that's what people who think that um, I have to do something. To, to earn my salvation, or people who think, I can lose my salvation. There's something I can do that will um, destroy everything Jesus did on the cross, and now I have to somehow do something else to maintain my salvation. That's adding to his work, and that's, a, that's an insult to his finished work. Do you get that? If you are truly, genuinely saved, and you know it, if you've repented of your sin and you've asked him to save you, you are saved forever. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. He did it all. No man can pluck you out of his hand and his father's hand. You know, it says, uh, for I am persuaded that neither death nor angels nor principalities nor heights nor depth nor any other creature, you know, all of it, nor any other creature can be able to, should be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You know what any other creature is? You and Satan. Satan can't take your salvation and you can't take your salvation. There's nothing you can do if you are truly saved to lose your salvation. All that He did it all. All that is needed is for the lost sinner to rest by faith in his completed word, work and word. There was an unusual um, evangelist. His name was Alexander Wooten. And he was once approached by a young man who asked him, what must I do to be saved? And Wooten very matter-of-factly answered him, and he said, sorry, it's too late. It's too late. And then he casually went on doing whatever he was doing, and this poor young guy, I mean, he was just horrified. He was in tears, and he, he said, he said, you mean to tell me it's too late for me to get saved? Is there nothing I can do? And Wooten said, nope, it's too late. It's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe in it. Believe in that done, finished work. That was really a good answer, wasn't it? I had a young girl, I'm crying because a young girl came to me yesterday after yesterday's message and she doubting her salvation and she just was not at peace. And she 
wasn't enjoying her salvation at all, and she nailed it down during our meeting yesterday. Yeah. Did you know there are four, this is, this is exciting to me, four significant times in the scripture when we hear these words, it is done, it is finished, te telestai. The first one is in Genesis 2.1. There, there we read about the account of the completion of God's original creative work. You know, God has a lot of works. So this was the te telestai of his creative work. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Now that's in Hebrew, but if it was in Greek, it would be te telestai <laughs> and the host of them. That's the end. That was the completion of his creative work. Then in John 19.30, which is our current text, we have the announcement from the cross. It is finished. It is done. Te telestai. That is regarding God's completed salvation work. Now, the next two are yet future, but in Revelation 16.17, the great voice of God speaking from the throne in the temple of heaven will shout, when the seventh bold judgment, this is during the tribulation on earth, this will actually be the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, and that, you know, there's seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bold judgments. So when the last bold judgment is poured out on earth, God from his throne in heaven says, it is done. That will be in regard to the completion of his judgment work on earth. And then one more, one more time in Revelation 21.6, we will hear the words, it is done from God Almighty. They will reverberate across the universe and it will be his announcement regarding the completion of his recreative work. Do you believe in global warming? I do, because one day this earth is going to be burned up, and it is going to be global warming. And he is going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth, and sin will never, ever again raise its ugly head. Amen. So we are now going to move on to the next saying. I am forgetting where, oh, this is his last. Okay, this is the seventh, the victor's death. And for this, uh, well, let me just read John 19.30. Did I ever read it? Did I read it? No, I didn't. Okay, John 19.30. <clears throat> when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. You can write in uh, the, your parentheses, te telestai. And, okay, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. All right, now that doesn't have the seventh saying. You really have to go over to Luke 23, 46, and I'll tell you what it is. You already know, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's, uh, I think, repeated by Mark and, and maybe Matthew, too. I'm not sure. But anyhow, that's the, that's the last saying. And it's a prayer, isn't it? Do you know that three of the seven cross sayings were prayers? The first? The middle and the last were prayers. That's interesting. It's a noble thing to die with a prayer on your lips. Remember that when you're dying. <laughs> Father, into the, I mean, Stephen didn't, did it, didn't he? 
it is a whole lot better to be dying with a prayer on your lips than to be die, to die cursing. Please don't do that. <laughs> but there's probably a lot of people who do that. Jesus was continually, throughout his whole earthly life, he was continually in communication with his father. So it's, it's appropriate, you know, that he died with a prayer on his lips. His final words are very significant, not only because they're his final words, and you're always interested in someone's last words before they leave this earth, but especially you would be interested in the Savior's last words. But they're also significant because of his use of the term father. What does that tell us? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Right. He is back in fellowship with his heavenly father. That three-hour darkness had passed. He had come out the other end of his God-forsaken hell of utter darkness and spiritual thirst and God-forsakenness, all of that, and... He was back in fellowship with his heavenly father. The spiritual death aspect of paying the wages for our sin was finished. It was accomplished. He died spiritually, and that was taken care of. Now he's back in fellowship with his father. So now is the time for him to fulfill the other aspect of death, which is actually the physical death. He's already died spiritually. Now he has to die physically. And it is very, very important that at the time of a person's physical death, he is not still spiritually dead, isn't it? That's an understatement. The time of physical death, that person better make sure he is not still spiritually dead or he'll be spiritually dead forever because the second death is eternal separation from God. But for Christ, the cup he had been given to drink was fully drained. The storm of divine wrath was spent. And now all was calm because the work was finished. He was spiritually reunited with his father. So there was no cause for anything other than calm rest in his father's hands as he commended his spirit into his father's care. So in doing this, he died trusting God to take care of his spirit. You see, as a man, he's 100% man and 100% God. So his, his humanity, he died fully trusting in God's promises and putting himself into God's hands. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that how we should die? I hope we all die with a prayer on our lips and joy in our hearts for all that lays ahead of us and in just in trusting God that he's going to fulfill his promises because he will. You'll be absent from the body but instantly present with the Lord. So he died honoring God. And then having said his final prayer, he breathed his last in a human clay vessel. That's all these are, these bodies of ours. They're just... You know, from the dust to the dust they return. One day they'll resurrect in a new glorified body. Can't wait for that. Never, never have to be on a diet again. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> so voluntarily, Jesus delivered his body. He had delivered his body voluntarily into the hands of his enemies. They, 
you know, if he didn't want them to, they wouldn't have been able to arrest him and do what they did to him. So voluntarily, he entrusted his body into the hands of his enemies. Now, also voluntarily, he delivered his spirit into the hands of his father. Never again, never again will he be in the hands of sinful men to suffer shame, pain, and abuse, and mockery in all he went through. Never again. That's why I say get rid of that cross with him on it. That's over with. He will never suffer again. He is not a victim of the mass. If you're following me, but you have to study that to understand. He is not a victim anymore. He's a victor. He will never suffer again. As a matter of fact, he who the world rejected is going to return. And next time, it's not to redeem. And next time, it's not as a suffering lamb. Next time, it's as a roaring lion. And he will come to rule and to reign over the world. And the situation next time is going to be totally reversed from the first time because this time men will not sit in judgment of him, illegal judgments, and accuse him falsely and put him to death. Next time he will sit in judgment of men, won't he? So once unbelieving men rejected him, remember when they said, we have no king but Caesar. Well, next time everyone who rejected him as their king will hear him say these horrible words. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who work iniquity. The scariest part of those tragic words is that many will say, but Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that in your name? Do you know what that means? That means many who thought they were Christians, many who occupy churches today will hear those words. Don't be in that position one day. Many, multitudes, multitudes of people will hear him say that. And it's all for one reason. It's because they had head knowledge and not heart knowledge. I grew up in a church that always talked about Jesus, but it was all up here. And I never was given the gospel that to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. I never heard that he stood at the door knocking and I had to open the door and invite him in. It's that simple. Move 18 inches down from the head. That's another cubit, by the way. <laughs> from the head to the heart. He must be received. It must be a personal thing. You have to invite him in, right? He's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way in. And that's all you have to do to not hear, I never knew you. He wants a personal relationship. You have to confess your sin like the penitent thief and just, I'm a sinner, I need you, save me. I mean, even a child can do that, right? He wasn't a victim of circumstances. He was a victor in control of, of his entire life. He was in control and even in his death, he was in control. He only died when absolutely everything was fulfilled that needed to be fulfilled scripturally. Now, physically speaking, he was not near the time of death. Okay? It was very unusual for a crucifixion victim to die only within six hours. It was part of the awful part of it that sometimes they'd linger on for even days. 
That's why Pilate, remember, Pilate was um, surprised when Joseph of Arimathea came to ask for the body of Jesus. He, he says, he's dead already? That was unusual. So physically speaking, Jesus was not at the point of death. He, was, he had just shouted very loudly twice in just a few minutes of one another. He had said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in a loud voice. And then he had said, Tetelestai, in a very loud voice. It took every ounce of energy just to be able to push up one's feet on that little cornu on the uh, vertical stipe, it was call called, of the cross. You had to push against that little um, sedile, was another name for it, so that you could, you know, your diaphragm would work so you could exhale. Uh, but to exhale with a loud voice, especially twice in a row, that was extremely unique. And it tells us that the, there was still strength in the Lord's body. And that would not have been possible for a man who was just merely seconds away from physical death. But you see, Jesus' atonement work for the sins of man uh, was done. And all he needed was his death to seal it. Plus, here's another thing. He didn't have a clock in front of him. But what time was it? Precisely three o'clock on Passover day. And he knew that that's when they, the priests began to slay in the temple all the Passover lambs. So it was time for him to die. Matthew 27:50 tells us that Jesus yielded up the ghost. And the literal meaning of the Greek word for yielded is dismissed, which is interesting. Dismissed. Who's in control of his own spirit? Jesus. Dismissed is like a, a master or a king would dismiss a servant. So with royal authority, the king of kings, the king of the Jews, dismissed his own spirit just as a king would dismiss his servant. And John 1930b, the last part of the verse, tells us that he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Lord's head did not drop. Okay? He bowed it. He deliberately bowed it. That means that before he bowed it, his head was held erect, up. It was not hanging or drooping, which would normally be the case for any crucifixion victim about to die or even after six hours of being going through pure torture. So the purposeful bowing of his head means that he had been holding it erect before this. He was not physically at the point of death yet. Um, because a person that far along would not have his head erect. It would be slumped over like this. So again, if you see paintings of Jesus about to die, and he's like this, it's wrong. His head was up the whole time. He was alert. His head bow was his final act of submitting to his father. It was his final act of honor to his father. He didn't let his head just fall forward with no control. 
He calmly, reverently, reverentially, <laughs> specifically, and purposely bowed it. And guess what? He did that before he dismissed his spirit. And that is not how a normal human dies. Normally, it is the other way around. First, the spirit departs from the body, and not at a person's own dismissal. But when the spirit departs, then what happens? Then the head drops. To have the order reversed, first the bowing of the head, and then the dismissal of the spirit, is just one more huge evidence of the fact that Jesus was in control all the way up to his last breath. He died precisely the hour that the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. He was in control. He chose the day. They did not want to kill him on the Passover. That was the one day they did not want to kill him. But what happened? <laughs> of course, it had to be the Passover, and of course it was. So he chose the day. He chose the hour. He chose the manner to give up his own life. No one took it from him, did they? Isn't that what he said? Isn't that precisely what he said in John 10, 17, and 18? I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Why does he have such power? Because he's God. And did he have power to take it up again three days later? Just as he said, absolutely. You see, the good shepherd willingly laid down his life for his sheep as the voluntary Passover lamb. So he is both the shepherd and the lamb, isn't he? He's everything. His physical death proved he was human because God cannot die. So we know he was human. He shed real human blood. And he really died. So he was 100% human. His death proved he was human. But the manner of his death proved he was God. 100% deity. Well, he came into the world by way of a supernatural virgin conception. So isn't it appropriate that he left this world by way of a supernatural victorious consummation? Of course it is. Then there were also three very strange phenomena that accompanied his death. They all occurred just like this, simultaneously with his death. And they were, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, the earth quaked, that was an earthquake, okay, earthquake, and then rocks were rent, certain rocks in a graveyard there in Jerusalem were rent, and select graves were opened to release after Christ's resurrection, three days later, on Resurrection Sunday, those rent graves, out of them came the bodies of deceased saints. Interesting. <laughs> and those three events, simultaneous with his death, were God-ordained, God-designed, and God-timed. They were supernatural testimonies, again, to Christ's person, who he was. 
and they were a testimony to his finished work of atoning for the sins of the world. So at the moment the Lord died, the primary object that symbolized the barrier between sinful man and holy God, which was what? The temple veil. That was the symbol of the barrier between sinful humanity and holy God. It, it um, kept from view the, the holy place from the holy of holies. You know, in the original tabernacle, the holy of holies had the Ark of the Covenant with the two golden cherubim and their wings touching each other over the mercy seat, and that's where the Shekinah glory of God hovered over the, the Ark of the Covenant between, on the mercy seat, and that was showed God dwelling with man. That's the Holy of Holies, and, and you know, in the Old Testament, there was only one man who could enter in the Holy of Holies, and it was only on one year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the great high priest. He could only go in there once, and they even tied a rope to his feet in case he did something wrong, and he died in there, and they could pull him out. <laughs> uh, well, that, whole, that, that veil separating God from humanity, God's presence from sinful man, the moment Jesus bowed his head from top to bottom I think it was like a zipper as he did that bow that temple veil rent from top to bottom do you know how big that veil was 60 feet tall 30 feet wide and it was as thick is a man's, uh, the breadth of a man's hand. They say about four or five inches this way. I have big hands, so it's probably identical to my, you know, I'm a great cubit and I'm a man's hand and big feet. I wear size 12. Yes, I'm big. <laughs> shoo, shoo. <laughs> I have a good foundation. You can't topple me over very easily, but anyhow, um, that's how big that veil was. Could you have torn it if you wanted to? No. No, not even the strongest man on the earth could tear something four or five inches thick. And from top to bottom, I mean, they'd have to get a ladder. Do you know, <laughs> this was not done in a corner, in secret. There were two and a half million people, they say, in Jerusalem for that Passover. And at three o'clock, the priests were all over the place sacrificing the lambs for those two and a half million people. There were... I mean, there was a lot of eyewitnesses, or at least, you know, the priest came out and said, ah, the temple veil just broke, you know, not broke, it rent and from top to bottom. So there was a lot of people who, who heard about it right away, happened the minute Jesus died. Um, it, but what was it? God, it was God saying, I accept the sin substitutionary sacrifice of my son, the perfect Passover lamb. His death now makes access into my presence possible for all who put their faith in his atoning work on their behalf he says now therefore I open my presence my holy presence to all who will come to me in his name do you know how great that is do you have any idea how wonderful it is that we have access boldly to the throne of God because of the finished work, that, that was such a great symbol, top to bottom. I grew up in a church where no one could go into the, whatever it was called, the back, the narthex or whatever. I can't remember the name. Some of you did too. 
Only the priest could do it. I didn't know I didn't have to go through a priest to God. But we can. I laughed yesterday. I didn't know I was a saint either. The first time somebody called me because I got born again, they said I was a saint. I was looking for the plate behind my head, you know. <laughs> the halo. <laughs> and it ain't there, let me tell you. <laughs> That is the greatest truth there is, that we can spend eternity with God in his holy presence because in Christ we are redeemed. And it's just too, too good to be true. When I first heard the gospel, I said, no, nah, that's too good to be true. I give him my sin. He gives me his righteousness. <laughs> Who would turn that down? So the tearing of the veil was a miracle. Yeah slightly it was a miracle of heaven because the tear began at the top and went down to the bottom and that was also true of Christ's death wasn't it his spirit his life was not torn or rent from him by men at the bottom you know all those down at the bottom of his cross they didn't rent his life from him his death came from above didn't it it actually came from him he bowed his head the veil tore he gave up his spirit. Then the earthquake, the rending of the rocks, all of it happened, the opening of the graves, all took place at the very moment of his death. The strength of the quake is indicated by the fact that the rocks were rent. It doesn't say they were just cracked. They were rent in half. It's the same word that is used about the temple veil. Now, that temple veil was rent from top to bottom. It was just like, you know, automatic, just completely apart. Same with the rocks or the tombstones or whatever they were in the grave. They were rent. Um, God used the force of the earthquake to open the graves of certain deceased saints. That's interesting. I mean, this was a very selective earthquake, <laughs> It didn't open up all the graves, only just some of them. And the ones it did open were certain saints. Now who, and they came out of their graves on Resurrection Sunday after Christ was resurrected. And it tells us that they actually, <laughs> that many, there were many. It says many came out of their graves and they were seen of many people. Can you imagine Resurrection Sunday? You get up to, you're going to go to the market and get your, it's not the Sabbath, it's a Sunday, so you can go and get your bread at the local market and all of a sudden you see your deceased Uncle Joe had been dead for 20 years. Can you, I'm, I'm just surprised more people didn't die of a heart attack when they saw all these deceased people walking around. But it, I mean, I, it says many, many. Who were these select resurrected people? Who? I mean, there's a lot of speculation about who they were. I don't know. I can't give you a definitive answer, but I wonder if weren't, maybe they weren't people who had put their faith in Jesus at some time during his 33 years of his earthly ministry. They believed on him. But they died before he was crucified and rose from the dead, before he finished the atonement work. That would be perhaps people like Simeon, old Simeon, and Anna, and perhaps someone like 
Elizabeth, Mary's older cousin, the mother of jo, uh, John the Baptist, and, her, and was his name Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? What about John the Baptist? Uh, except I don't know that he was buried in Jerusalem. I'm not sure where. But whoever, they would be people buried in Jerusalem because that's where the, the tombs were that opened up. But I don't know, but that's an interesting thing to speculate. And what about, did they resurrect in new glorified bodies? Or do you think they um, just were kind of like Lazarus? You know, Lazarus came out in his flesh and bone body and would have to die again, poor guy. Were they bodies like that? What do you think? Well, I think we have a little bit of a hint. I'm not sure. Can't be dogmatic. But by the fact that the earthquake had to rent open the tombs so that they could come out, I think they came out in their flesh and blood bodies. Because to come out of, in a glorified body, you don't need the tombstone open to you. <laughs> At the time of the rapture, we're just going to be, I mean, if you know, I hope it'll happen while we're still alive, but all those who have preceded us, they don't have to have their tombstone open. They're just going to come up out of the ground, right? So that's, that was one hint, tells me maybe who they were. All right, so the earthquake, the rending of the rocks, the opening of the graves all took place at the very same time of the Lord's death. <clears throat> um, and it's interesting, as I said, how selective the earthquake was. It was not a normal quake. You know, it, it was able to rent those rocks in half, and yet it didn't move the crosses on Golgotha. They just stayed firmly there. So, and it was very selective about which, you know, so this is, this is a supernatural earthquake, not a normal earthquake. It's almost as if the earth understood the meaning of the Lord's victory shout, it is finished. And the earth couldn't wait to begin to display the resurrection fruit. It's also, I think, <laughs> I think it was God's response to his son's victory cry. When God said, it is finished, God said, amen. <laughs> and the whole earth quaked. <laughs> That's my imagination. Um, <laughs> but the greatest part of the miracle took place three days later when those many saints came out <laughs> From their graves. The rent veil was a testimony that his son, that a, God, a testimony from God that his son had conquered sin. The veil was his testimony that God, the son, had conquered sin. The earthquake was his loud amen to his son's finished work and his fulfilling of the law. The open graves of believers and their resurrection was God's testimony that his son had conquered death. So the veil, a testimony that his work conquered sin. The earthquake, a testimony that his son fulfilled the law. And the open graves and the people coming out of them that his son had conquered death. Now I want to read you something from uh, my own book, quoting myself again, <laughs> um, about the earthquake 
and how it connects to Sinai. You remember Mount Sinai back in the Old Testament where God gave the law? All right, listen to this. What was God saying by way of the earthquake he orchestrated at the precise moment of his son's death? You know, God's always saying something. So what was he saying? If we again go to the Old Testament, we learn exactly what he was saying. Calvary was the answer to Sinai. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, we're told in Exodus 19, 18, the whole mountain quaked greatly. What was the significance of that quaking? God Almighty on Mount Sinai was giving the law of Moses to his people to make the people understand the seriousness of his law God accompanied his giving of it with thunder and lightning a thick cloud the exceeding loud voice of the trumpet of God with smoke and the quaking of the entire mountain and these things caused the people to tremble by way of these vis visual audible illustrations from nature, God was teaching the seriousness of his view on sin. The law was given to teach men how sinful we really are and to understand how impossible it is for any one of us to perfectly keep its high standards of holy righteousness. The law was given to men so that by our, to, for us to see that by our efforts, we can never meet it. We can never satisfy its absolute standards of holiness. So Sinai was intended to get people to realize their need of a savior. Calvary's earthquake was God's answer to Sinai's earthquake. Calvary's earthquake said, the law has been fully met, for Christ has met its holy requirements. The shout of Calvary's victory cry, it is finished, ground out the mighty trumpet blast of Sinai's wrath against sin. Sinai, you see, was prophecy of Calvary, and Calvary was the fulfillment of Sinai. God's voice and earthquake at Sinai spelled out condemnation, right? Because no one can fulfill the law, so we're all under the condemnation of the law. Sinai's earthquake spelled out condemnation. His voice and accompanying earthquake at Calvary, his voice meaning te telestai, and then the, the earthquake at Calvary, however, spelled out pardon and forgiveness and peace. That was pretty good. I wrote that and I forgot all about it. <laughs> but so, you know, everything God does has a purpose. Those three miracles had a purpose. Um, well, the combination, just done, just about done now, um, of the Lord's unique behavior throughout the whole crucifixion ordeal, his, his behavior, his claim to being the son of God, his prayers, his composure, his sin, sin uh, uh, selflessness throughout the three hours of eerie darkness, 
the majestic manner of his death, all of these things, and of course that accompanied by an earthquake, which caused even the Roman soldiers, it said, to fear greatly. All those things together, work together in the heart of a Roman centurion who gave his conclusive testimony to everything he had witnessed and his testimony was true. <laughs> what did he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. I would say, truly, this is the Son of God. We are then told by Luke that this man actually glorified God. So it is very reasonable to conclude that the seventh Calvary miracle was the Roman centurion's salvation. The first miracle uh, of Calvary's seven miracles was the salvation of a Jewish criminal. The last miracle was the salvation of a Roman commander. So, right, Jesus came to save everyone. He saved Simon the Cyrenian. If you weren't here, we, know, we pretty are sure, pretty sure he was saved because of his two sons who were known in the early church. And how did they, and his wife, how were they known by Paul and known in the early church? Probably because of their dad, Simon. He carried the Lord's cross. The penitent thief hung next to the Lord's cross, and the centurion was beneath the Lord's cross. The Lord's death, and, and one, was, one was a criminal. One was a common man, Simon. One was a criminal, and one was a commander. One was um, uh, a, an African. One was a Jew. One was a Roman. You see, the Lord's death not only tore down the dividing wall between God and man, the veil, but it also broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, between commoner, criminal, and commander, between black and white, African, Jew, Roman, Israelite, male, female, you name it, all the things that people like to divide us with. But in Christ, what are we? We are all one. And he came to save the entire world, didn't he? Praise God. I'm going to end with a poem. If I can find it, a poem I wrote called, What Greater Love? What better place for a lamb to be born than in a manger so meek and forlorn? What greater statement of love could he make coming to earth to die for our sake? Equal with God, yet he veiled his crown, stepped out of glory to Bethlehem town. Grand is the love of the one who made all, who came in man's flesh and was born in a stall. Humble in birth, even more so in death, came the creator with life in his breath. Laid on the wood of a manger was he to one day be hung from the wood of a tree. With power and might to the fullest degree, he willingly chose to endure Calvary. Having the strength to crush every foe, he willingly purposed to take Satan's blow. He came for a reason, and he carried it through. He did it for me, and he did it for you. A once-for-all sacrifice to pay for our sin. The holy of holies, we now go right in. 
The lamb, oh so worthy, now sits at God's right for saints interceding each day and each night. How much we do praise him for all he has done. How blessed are we who believe on the Son. And blessed are we who await his return, looking toward heaven with hearts that do yearn to hear that trump sound and be raised in a flash, leaving this world where our values so clash. Thank God for the lamb so long ago born who laid in a manger with straw his adorn. Thank God for Christ Jesus, creator of all, who hung on a tree as a curse for our fall. What greater statement of love could he make coming to earth to die for our sake? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unconditional love that you have for the world so much that you sent your only begotten son that Whoever believeth in him would not perish, but would have life everlasting. Thank you that the death of Christ changed the temple veil from a one-time barrier to a gateway that all may enter in if they put their faith in his finished redemptive work. Now we can go boldly to your throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace in time of need. We thank you for that truth. I ask now that you would go with each woman. We'll be parted for a month, and the way things are going, we don't know what might happen in that month, but please keep her healthy and safe and put a hedge of protection around her and her family. Keep all of us from the evil one. Thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And, Lord, if there is one here who is not either sure of her salvation or worried about losing her salvation, I pray that she would nail that down today. The greatest thing in the world is to not leave this world physically and still be spiritually dead because we want to spend eternity in your holy presence. So I pray if there's one yet unsaved, today would be the day of her salvation. Now go with us, bring us back in another month, and we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.